Welcome to the How Soccer Explains Leadership Podcast, where we explore leadership principles through the lens of the beautiful game. Welcome back to How Soccer Explains Leadership. Thanks again for being a part of the conversation. I'm Phil Dark, your host. I got with me my brother, my teammate, Paul Jobson. And, you know, once again, we have another great interview coming your way. We got Becky Burley with What Drives Winning. You've probably heard of her and What Drives Winning. She does that with Brett Ledbetter. Some amazing, amazing stuff. I've just been binging the last week in preparation. It's been like my, some of my favorite research from an interview for an interview I've ever done. And and, you know, Paul, I just, you know, we were talking a little bit about your introduction to Becky in, in, the, in the soccer world, at least. And so, you know, to tell us a little bit about that. Well, it wasn't my introduction to Becky. Everybody knows who Becky is. <laughs> but when, when Marcy and I came and took over at Baylor, one of our first preseasons, Becky was nice enough to let us come down and play an exhibition against her team and welcomed us kindly to Power Five Conference Soccer. It was a great, we definitely accomplished what we were trying to accomplish with our team, which was, hey, you want to play at this level? This is what it's going to look like. And this is where we're trying to get. So she kindly obliged us and nicely introduced us to Power Five Soccer. And later on, we went down for a NCAA tournament down at University of Florida and met up against North Carolina there. But as hosts, they were fantastic hosts. Becky always, always ran a great program, is very well respected. And always welcoming to people and always engaging. So always appreciated. And Marcy always has great things to say about Becky too. So I'm excited to get to talk to her about what drives winning and, and her career and her success over the years. So it's going to be as always something that I'm going to take great pleasure in having another interview with an amazing person in our, in our game. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. So we got that. We'll get to Becky here in a second. Becky is, you know, she's a graduate of Methodist college and she coached at Berry college, a little, little college there in Rome, Georgia. Also little known fact, it might not be little known anymore. That's where the Chick-fil-A Windshape center is. So if you like Chick-fil-A, you know, I don't think this will have anything to do with that, but that's okay. That's there. And we also, you know, she spent 27 years at the university of Florida now with what drives winning. So Becky, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm excited. And Paul, I will say, you know, you guys introduced us to stuff too. Your teams are always like the biggest competitors ever. So thanks for that. You bet. You bet. If we can compete, we've always got a chance, right? That's so. right. That's right. That's exactly right. That's the 100%. So we'll, we'll get into a lot of these, these principles today. Before we get into a lot of the great leadership stuff that I know will come through this interview, you know, we, I, I introduced a little bit of, the, of the, the stats, kind of the resume there, Becky, but can you just share, briefly share your story, you know, be, the story behind the, the resume of, you know, how you developed your passion for soccer, for coaching, for, for leadership, and, and really how you ended up coaching coaches through What Drives Winning? Well, you know, my, my journey for coaching is one that I really always hesitate to share because it's just so unrealistic nowadays, <laughs> but in that era, it was a little different. So I actually started playing soccer when I was 10, my parents moved from Massachusetts to Florida and where we lived in Massachusetts was in the middle of nowhere. So when we moved to Florida, we moved across the street from the soccer field and I had never played soccer before, never played a team sport before, never even an organized sport before. So it was just a great place to spend a lot of time. My parents were like, go just be over there all day. And that's what I did. And um, because I lived across the street from the soccer field, whenever we would have new players join our youth team, they would always say, Hey, if you want to do a little extra, go see Becky. So I feel like I like started coaching at like 11. <laughs> <laughs> but then when I went to college, my, my college coach was Joe Pereira and he was a big developer of players. He worked with the Olympic development program for quite some time at that time was a big deal. And 
he kind of allowed me to get some experience with him as a college athlete. I got to coach. And so then that gave me my opportunity to go to Barry. I literally graduated from Methodist in May, became the head coach at Barry in June. And despite the fact that Barry was like this, you know, small NAI school at the time, they were really good because Ray Leone had coached them. They had won a national championship two years before. So Ray left me a great deal of talent to, to take on. And then was at Barry for five years when the Florida job opened and Florida was pretty, I guess, proactive in the way that they handled their job and hired me. I had a year to build the program and then we started a year later and then stayed there for the whole rest of the time. Yeah. And so how did, how did it go from, okay, we're coaching at Florida and then how'd that work with, with what drives winning and, and how that all come to come to be? Yeah, that's actually a very interesting story. So Brett Ledbetter, who's now my business partner in What Drives Winning, he's a basketball background. So I'm not sure our paths would have ever crossed. But I was at this conference in New York City and Daniel Coyle was speaking. He wrote The Culture Code, The Talent Code, both really good books if you haven't read those. And afterwards, I went up to him and I said, hey, you know, it would be great if you were ever in Gainesville, like to come speak to our team thinking, I mean, Daniel Coyle lives in Alaska. So like, what are the chances? (laughs) But you never know unless you ask. Yeah, that's um, right. So I, he said, oh, I was just in Gainesville like two weeks ago. And I was like, what? And so he knew Mark Dagnall, who was on our men's basketball staff with Billy Donovan. The crazy mm. thing was, I didn't know Mark. And I felt like I knew everybody at Florida because I've been there a long time at this point. This was only like 10 years ago. And so I looked up Mark on the little staff directory and found him and I called him and I was just like, Hey, like want to get coffee? And he obliged. And so then he introduced me to Brett because he was very interested in Brett's academy that he was running for fifth to 12th grade basketball players in St. Louis. And so I went up there and sort of the rest became history. I invited Brett to come down and work with my team. The other coaches at Florida really enjoyed what he was saying. We started this head coaches collaboration at Florida. And the beauty was, is like, I got access to all this information that was basically everything to do with coaching, except the X's and O's from all these different sport coaches. And it was like a free education that I could use with my team while I was coaching and then just transitioned into that after I was done coaching. Yeah, that's so cool. And, you know, Paul, I I don't know about you, but I'm sensing this theme in the last, you know, well, I mean, pretty much all over the, the podcast, but this theme of ask you never know what might happen right you know you just worst they can yeah, say we've is come no across that quite yeah. a bit yes yeah. yes and you know we talked yeah, about I can, let me tell you that, that that's a really good point because the person who set the tone for me with that was anson dorrance um mm-hmm. when i was coaching at barry you know i mean who, who does anson know who i am at methodist college and then barry college and i asked him if i could come observe training and he said yes and then i found out that he says yes to anyone who asks <laughs> and i was just like yeah. Dang, if Anson can do that, like I got to step up my game and let people do that. You know, like that was, that made a really big impact on me. Yeah, definitely. Paul, did anybody ever ask you to come watch your training? All the time. Okay. All the time. All right. And, All uh, you know, and never came back. So it was kind of a one and done <laughs> when they came to watch our training, but no, but it, I'll tell you a funny story on that. I thought of it in an earlier podcast and didn't share it, but we had a young woman at Baylor that uh, was in a grad program and just called Marcy and said, Hey, I just want to come observe practice. You know, I'm in a class. I just, you won't even know I'm there. I'm going to sit in the stands. I love soccer, blah, blah, blah. Marcia's like, sure, come on out. No problem. Never thought twice about it. A few weeks later, Chuck, our assistant comes over and goes, who's that girl in the stands? And we had totally forgotten. So we're like, Chuck, go figure it out. Go see who it is. Make sure it's not a spy from TCU. Okay. Make sure that we're being spied on. 
Anyway, goes over. Yeah, Marcy said I could come, blah, blah, blah. Long story short, Anna ends up becoming a manager on our team. Anna ends up becoming an assistant coach for us, our goalkeeper coach. Anna goes on to be an associate head coach at another university and now is, is working at Dallas Baptist. So out of nowhere, we, we've got a best friend who just called one day and said, hey, can I just come observe practice and, and kind of launched her coaching career as well. So you do, you never, you never know, um, but it's, and it's also, uh, definitely worth the call. On that note too, when people call you, coaches out there listening, other people out there listening, take the call. You never know mm -hmm. who they may introduce you to. You never know what you could teach them and where they could end up being, right? You never know what you could be a catalyst for. So that's something that uh, I, I love that story. Love that story. Love, yeah, I mean, and, all and that. I've had plenty of responses, Becky, probably you too. Like, I can't believe you even answered my email. I can't believe you even returned my phone call. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, you called me. So Becky, through all this, I think we're kind of weaving into some of this too. But before we get into a, a lot more of like your story and, 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 and everything, What's, what's your personal why? Why do you do what you do and how, how are you living that out? You know, I, my parents, neither of them went to college and no one in my family has been to college. So when I went to school, like I always knew I wanted to go to college, but I had no idea of like majors and like, you know, I just didn't have any concept of that. And so I only knew like the things I saw. So the first thing I want to do is I thought, well, maybe I'll be a teacher because I really wanted to coach, but my parents were like, that's not really a real job. Like, you know, my dad <laughs> used to always say like, soccer's not going to pay the bills. And so I thought, well, I could be a teacher and then maybe I could coach, you know, in addition to that. And so when I got into the coaching side of it, which Joe gave me that opportunity while I was still in college, like, I was like, Dang, like coaching is like teaching, but like magnified because you're with them through so many highs and lows and it's emotional and it's challenging. And, and so then that just sparked in me, like, I, I want to be part of this going forward. I, I think my coaches always had a big impact on me. I had a female high school coach, which at the time was super rare. Yeah. I had Joe as my college coach. And I mean, just people who really impacted me personally and I thought, man, if I could even do part of that for somebody, I'd be really happy with my contribution. I like that. As that, that kind of kind of leads into, you know, what drives winning a little bit. I'm sure there's a lot of overlap into kind of what you just said and teaching and 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 being kind of a mentor type thing. But what what is what's the mission of what drives winning, and what do you hope all the leaders will get out of the materials that you and Brett are, are producing? Oh, that's a big question. Hit heavy hitters right from the start. I love it. Um, we get going. Yeah, we get going. I think that the the whole point behind what drives winning is to help people create a platform where they can coach themselves. And we have like some pillars that we do that with, like self awareness and character development and leadership and all those different things. But in the end, like I think that a lot of times we like as coaches we think of coaching and we immediately go to X's nose. And, you know, what I've learned the most of being in this front row seat of what drives winning for, I guess, almost 10 years now is like every coach of every sport is dealing with the same issues. And it's those human related issues that really impact performance even more so than the X's nose. And I'm not trying to discount, like you got to have a good process for sure. But like when you see coaches losing their jobs or you see teams that are struggling to have cohesion, like it's it's almost always human related issues. And for me, like the big aha moment is like, why as coaches do we spend 90 or 90 plus percent of our time on X's and O's when our team is telling us that these are the issues that are going to get in the way? And so I think trying to help coaches work through that, that's that's a real 
that's a real passion project of mine. Yeah, and I, I, I'm a big proponent of that too. And I think things that are constant themes on this podcast, one is, you know, know yourself first. So coaching, coaching yourself and your bow to lead others better, obviously. And then, you know, just the idea of, you know, so many coaches we've had on here, they're not talking about the X's and O's and what make them successful. It's those relationships. It's, it's knowing your, knowing yourself, right. And knowing your players and, and being able to get the most out of them. They, they'll be able to produce on the field, the X's and O's and the, the concepts and, and all of those things. If they, if they feel like one, they're, they're believed in, right. And, and not, not falsely, right. That, but that's, it's a productive relationship. So I love, I love, I love that. Here recently, Phil, you got anything to add on that? I was going to jump into another question, but I, Sometimes I just keep driving, you know, so no, I that, slow down. you know, that, no, keep going, keep going. You're on a roll. Oh, we're rolling. All right. I'm we're rolling, Becky. We're going to keep going. Love uh, it. This is more just kind of a, kind of on the personal side of things you posted recently on Twitter. There's two questions you ask yourself at the end of every year. Right. And I don't have to tell you what they are, but I'll tell our listeners what they are. One, what do I need to create in this new year? And perhaps even more importantly, what do I want to let go of? Why these questions? And if appropriate, can you can you share how you answered them this year? And if not, no big deal. But why those questions? No. Well, first of all, I think I stole those questions from someone else. I, I, that's most of my, I, I think a lot of stuff I that we'll talk about, I have stolen from someone else. But That's I think another those, common theme, by the way, on this podcast. Yeah. So you're good. <laughs> I think those questions are really interesting is because, you know, contribution is, is an important theme for me. Like even, you know, people are like, well, how are you enjoying retirement? And I'm like, I don't know if this is like really retirement. It's just like something different, but contribution is a big driver for me. Like how can I contribute? And then I think the second part is like a lot of times our contribution is limited by the things that we can't let go of. So for example, I was listening to a podcast last night and it was Abby Wambach and Adam Grant. And she was talking about letting go of her athletic identity in order to move into a more fuller dimensional person, because as an athlete, you're so you know, you have to be like very one dimensional to be successful at the level that Abby was. And I feel like as coaches, sometimes that's the case too. Like I, I honestly feel like I came through a very long coaching career, relatively unscathed because I was a little bit more of a multi-dimensional person, but that wasn't without feedback at times of like, Hey, like, does she need to be more focused? Does she need to be, you know, like more laser on the things that are like what people think about as coaching? I always looked at it as the more, the more I can bring good energy to my team, that's a competitive advantage that others who might be, you know, soccer, soccer, soccer until two in the morning and then getting up at six and starting the whole process again, like that, that was not my MO, but I feel like it's hard to fight against that tide of what society is telling you. We, you know, we, we talk a lot about mental health and athletes. Let me tell you, I, I teach a class at UF now and trying to find research on coach mental health is not easy. Mm -hmm. I mean, we just had the one that yeah. just came out by the NCAA, but it's, it's a challenge because it's not something that's really being addressed very much. And I think yeah. it's, it's starting to, but like, how do you, how do you regulate, your own self, like what you said, in order to bring the best for your team. And sometimes yeah, you know, that means letting go of things. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, what did you did you go through that exercise yourself? Did you did you do that this year? 
as far as letting go of things or just the two asking questions. those questions. Yeah. The two questions. Yeah. I mean, I think the two questions for me is it's not even a yearly thing. It's kind of just like an all the time thing. Like mm-hmm. how do you, what, what is it like, what are the highest priorities in terms of what I want to create and put into the world and also what's holding me back from doing that. And most of the time what's holding you back from doing that is something of your own, like something you need to let go of. It's not necessarily something external. Yeah. Yeah. You know, on that note, one, I, yesterday I was at a, I was at a, an FCA talk at a, my kid's high school and the, the speaker, Daniel Viglione, she played for the Sacramento Monarchs. She was, her stats were crazy. She went through some of them, just got her number retired, all this stuff. And she was talking about how an 11 year old kid was asked the question, or it was, they were playing apples to apples. And it was like, what's the most destructive thing? It was destruction was the, was the word in apples to apples. And the two things that were, they were going between this kid, 11 year old kid was going between was a level five hurricane or voices in my head. And the kid, wow. 11-year-old, cho- chose voices in my head. And it was just this, just poignant. I mean, but so, that's, that goes for everybody, right? Like, they are so, can be so destructive. So get rid of the, a lot of those negative side of things. And by the way, one of my favorite books is Steal Like an Artist. You know, this, <laughs> this book is just so beautiful. It's a short book, too. And, but it just talks about that idea that the best ideas in history were conglomerations of, of multiple ideas. They weren't some new, there's nothing new under the sun, right? So you got these ideas. And so often we say, we got to create this novel thing that is brand new. It's like, no, we don't. We just need to take the best ideas and make them better. And, and, add, and it's not even necessarily, make them different maybe is the better, better word, right? To be able to say, how can we make this our own in our particular context at this particular time with these particular people? What does that look like? Musicians, you know, you look at Metallica, they said one of their most biggest influences was Mozart. And people don't think about that. You go, wait, what? How is Metallica and Mozart? But because it's just music. And how do you create music? And what's the theory behind it? And so how can we use that? And, I, you know, and that's what I talk to a lot of people. Don't reinvent the wheel. The, you know, how can we take these great ideas like what you're doing with, with what drives winning and use that in our particular context? And as you said, that's what you're wanting them to do is take this and don't just do it and go do it like I did it. No, you're going to do it differently. Right. And so, you know, let, let's just kind of get into that, get into the, the, the what drives winning a little bit deeper. And before we get into what drives winning specifically, because I did have a couple concepts I do want to touch on there. But I also know that you use DISC and, and I and are, are a proponent of that. So am I. We've talked about that a lot on the on the show. But, you know, can you just talk a little bit about that and, you know, how you use DISC, why you value it and why you think coaches and teams should be using it? Yeah, I, I love DISC. I actually got certified in this because it was so important to me to have an in-depth understanding of it. And I've done all of them, like Myers-Briggs, Enneagram, I mean, you name it. Mm-hmm. The reason I like DISC is because of the simplicity of the language. And I think it's so easy to remember what the DISC are. It's so easy to recognize the patterns of behavior when you see them. Like I could, you know, meet 10 people today and probably give you a reasonable idea of where they fall in DIS and C. And that informs me as to the best way to be able to reach them, you know, and I had, I learned so much. I mean, I think we learn so much usually from the people who are very different from us. And I can remember we had a player at Florida who's still playing now pro player. And she was like one of the highest C's I've ever seen. So it's the C's are very conscientious. They're very data-driven. They are very thoughtful. 
And so whenever we would have a meeting together and I would ask her a question, I would say something like, hey, what's, you know, what's the most important thing we should be talking about right now? Total silence. And me in my I and D-ness would be like trying to supply a multiple choice answer for her to, <laughs> to pick from. Whereas if you understand DISC, then you're like, give them a little time and space to come up with the answer. Because when they answer that, it's going to be really thoughtful and a really good answer. Whereas the I or D is going to throw out the first thing that comes to their mind, but may not even be the most important thing you should be talking about. <laughs> so I just felt like I learned so much. And I think what sold it for me was when... I had a few players say that when they were on like job interviews that they would talk about DISC and their own self-awareness as well as their awareness of their teammates. And it just blew people out of the water in their interview because they're like, wow, like we have people who have worked here for 20 years that don't have that awareness. And so I think when you can create more awareness about yourself as well as the people that you are surrounded with, good things are going to come of that. Yeah. You know, and I, I love that. I've done, you know, some trainings with some different teams. And, and on that note, I, I love teaching the players and the coaches. Like, this is something you'll use on this team. But more importantly, this is something you'll use in your life. You'll use it mm -hmm. in those job interviews. And how can you use it in a job interview? And kind of talk to them about that a little bit. And how will you use it in your in your marriage, and your parent? How will you do that? Because, and hopefully that's what we're doing with all the lessons we're doing. But I say the same thing about DISC. It's the simplicity that makes it so powerful. And um, so are there specific ways that you used it, like, you know, to, to help retain? I mean, you talk about that with the, with the high C. Paul's a high C, so he was saying amen in his head. He didn't actually say it out loud, but... but uh, It was coming. It was coming, yeah, but... Yeah, <laughs> 10 minutes or so. But, uh, but are there different ways? Because I, I know I've actually done my informal study on this, and I actually spoke about it at the, at the United Soccer Coaches Convention, but... We're, we tend to be losing our I's and our C's at the highest levels. And the, the percentages are there that it's, it's way lower than the national averages. And the D's are way higher, which is not surprising given that they're, they're results driven. But the S's are, are right around where they should be because they like being on teams. But is there a way to motivate those I's and those C's that you can see and to, to retain them? Well, you know, I think the cool thing about this too is it's just behavior, right? So it's, 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 ability to learn those behaviors and to integrate those behaviors into your environment are always accessible to everyone. For some people, it's more natural, but for everyone, it's accessible. And I think that, you know, when you think about it, like, especially if you think about the eyes, like you want to have eyes on your team in the sense of like, they're your people who are enthusiastic, optimistic, you know, they're, they bring energy to your team. And how do you reward that without, discouraging the behaviors that eyes also have that are like, you know, you're explaining something at practice and they're like, squirrel, you know, like <laughs> yeah. you just, you have to live with both because everybody's strength is their weakness at the same time. And then I think with the C's, it's like, you know, like I think about in soccer, like a high C, like, let's say you have a complex set piece. They know their role. They know everybody else's role. And they're really pissed when someone doesn't know their own role, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. but like the, the detail that is required is important for things to be executed. Again, like the flip side of that is the C's are going to overthink things sometimes. So like helping them understand, like, let's try to make the best decision in the limited time we have, as opposed to the best decision overall, because that could take hours or days. And so I, I, what I love about DISC is like 
trying to put people in the roles that they're most comfortable. So like, I am not going to take a high S and say, Hey, I need you to go get on her for doing this. Cause that's going to be super uncomfortable for them, you know, but I might say to an S, Hey, can you sort of get a vibe for like why that person is thinking like that? Like, can you be a little supportive in that situation? They will love that because that's right in their wheelhouse. So to me, it's like, finding ways to put people in their most comfortable situations, but also getting them to realize that they can expand outside of those roles, but not in a place that's going to cause them like tons of stress in doing it. And I think as coaches, when we're not aware of what people are, sometimes we're putting people in stressful situations without even knowing it. I'll give you a great example. I, I teach a class at UF right now with athletes. And there's one athlete that every time he writes, it keeps coming up that like, clearly his coach wants him to be a more vocal leader and he's not, you know, he's just not. And it is affecting how his coach is viewing him and how his team is viewing him in some ways, because they're asking him to be in this role. That's not his strength. So he's probably not great at it yet. And so how instead could you put him in a role of accountability still, but within his strength set. And I think as coaches, sometimes, we, we look past that. Like I, I can think of coaches I've had even that always thought the leader should be loud, vocal, hardworking, like get everybody going. And they overlooked somebody who maybe had really strong leadership skills, but just, they didn't present themselves in the same way that they wanted it to look. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I could, I could, as you, as you know, Paul, I could talk about this for hours and hours, but we're not going to, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to move on as much as I want to dig in. We got a lot more to get to, and I know I want to get to that stuff too. But one of the things you talk about on, it was, I think it was either on Twitter or something I'd heard on the What Drives Winning, but it doesn't really matter where I heard it, but this idea of the weak voice and the strong voice thoughts, I think you said it was one of your favorite videos and it was somebody else again, but, but what, you know, what is that all about? You know, can you talk about that concept that the accompanying exercise where you kind of talk about the, you know, you, you, you write lists about them and what you notice about them. What, can you just talk through that and, and why it's important for us? Yeah, that, that was that strong voice, weak voice. It's on YouTube. If you want to look it up, it's Sue Enquist, who used to be the softball coach at UCLA. She's iconic coach. Amazing. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I love about that video is she shows all these weak voice thoughts, what people have written down as their weak voice. Like I'm not good enough. I don't know if I can make it like all these things. And then it shows who those are attached to like Olympic champion or, you know, NCAA player of the year. And it just shows us that like everyone has weak voice thoughts, even those people who you think how impossible for them to have weak voice, look at all they've done. And so I think it's, it's like, how, how can we as coaches create platforms for people to, tame their negative inner voice, if that's what they have, and build a positive inner voice. Because ultimately, you know, I think we all have pretty good advice for ourselves if we take it, or if we have a platform to deliver it to ourselves. But so often, you know, we listen to the outside, or we give too much credence to what other people are doing, instead of trying to problem solve for ourselves and listening to our own advice. And I think that's one of the beauties of that the idea of that video is like, man, you know, you, you can, you can give yourself some pretty good advice, but you got to take it. And if you don't take it, then why would anyone else listen to you? Yeah, no, that was, that was really powerful when I, when I watched it. And one of the other things that was really powerful is it says, you know, always make sure your strong voice gets the last word, 
right? Mm-hmm. And I, I really, really like that. And then the other one is, and this is something we talk a lot about on this on this show too, is just this idea of, of overcoming adversity and resilience and the importance of that in, in players and how oftentimes our, our youth are not getting that now because of various different reasons that we could talk about. But what I want to talk about is this quote, this struggle is a biological requirement for greatness. Can you speak about that for a little bit? Yeah, you know, that came from the What Tries Winning Teams book when Brett was working with, I believe it was the Gonzaga men's basketball team in that particular instance. And, you know, it's like if you had a team that was really talented and your schedule consisted of 10 games that were you could easily win versus 10 games that were going to really challenge you, like if you were trying to compete for a championship at the end of that, which would you pick? And most coaches are going to pick the challenging schedule because you know you have to get tested in order to see where your strengths and weaknesses lie. But then when we're in the adversity, like individually or as a team, we're just like, this sucks. Like, and we don't want to be <laughs> in it, you know? But I think if we can reframe that to like, okay, like this is a great time of year to be in this because it's giving us reps at dealing with the adversity when it's not do or die in the NCAA tournament or the playoffs or whatever. And I think it's, it's like welcoming the adversity as a growth point, as opposed to looking at it as like, I don't want to be in this, you know, there, there's another great video Landry fields. He's the president and GM of the Atlanta Hawks. He talks about being in the pit and it's an interview again, it's on YouTube, but it, he, he says it so eloquently. I wish I could go through the whole thing, but he, ties in like the hero's journey and this athlete development model. And it's, it's almost like the question I would ask is like, why don't we at, you know, expect adversity on our journey? And we don't like you, if you ask athletes that question, like no one plans for adversity, but we all know it's going to happen. We all know we're going to face it at some point. But I think I was talking to a, a office mate of mine and he was saying how, athletes, sometimes they don't want to think about the adversity because they think that's going to create the adversity. Hmm. It's almost like this ultimate optimism that if the, if I don't think about it, then it's not going to happen, but we know it's going to happen, you know? And so again, like trying to reframe the idea of adversity as a bad thing into something that's actually going to help us grow and be a requirement for greatness in the end. Yeah. I think, I think we're, we've started to I don't want to say create a culture, but there's so many avenues where we're trying to help athletes avoid those struggles at times because we know they don't want to struggle. So we're like, how do we best, you know, keep them from struggle? But I think we're hurting them in the long run. You know, I've had players that I've recruited that they're not on campus yet and they they tear their ACL or whatever. And I just say, hey, listen, this might be the best thing that's ever happened to you because you have the opportunity to come back stronger than you ever have. If this happened to you while you're in college, you would absolutely think your life is over. You know, I, I almost hate it when kids show up on campus and they've never had an injury. You know, it's like because they're going to get hurt. Right. You know, it's a, it's inevitable. Mm-hmm. It may be just an ankle sprain, but they've never had it before and their career is over. You know, but the kid that comes in that's had a little bit of adversity that's had to fight back from a, an ACL or a, a high ankle sprain or whatever it may be. They tend to be a little bit more more resilient down the stretch. They've had it taken away. They know what that feels like. They fought to get it back. They've struggled through that. And I always encourage those players, you got to share that, right? Share your strong voice when others are thinking their their weak voice. They've got to share that. So I, I love that concept as we talk about that struggle and we talk about how it, it can make you stronger. I think 
it's, I don't think we can say it enough because I think even as parents, sometimes we don't want our kids to struggle, you know, and I don't, I don't want my kids to struggle, but you know, when I make my nine-year-old call his wrestling coach and tell me he's not coming to practice, that's like devastating to him, but he's got to go through it. Right. So anyway, I could, I could talk for hours about that. So that's we'll something on from that too. But. Anything Paul could talk about for hours, folks, you got to listen. Cause that's, that's something. <laughs> Hey, I'm, I'm short. So when I find a soapbox, I like to stand on it. It helps me. <laughs> so anyway, else on that, Phil? No, hey, that's Becky? good. No, let's, let's, let's keep it going. Yeah, Becky, I want to, I want to dive into to just your career and your development as, as you know, how you kind of have become who you are and back in your soccer, just your soccer career as a player, was there a defining moment that you had as a player that, that, it just kind of was very impactful to you into your development. You can even go back to this point in your life and go, that that was a moment that really changed the trajectory of, of who I am. You know, I, w- I wasn't a really great player. It's actually a kind of a running joke at Methodist College because I got inducted into the Hall of Fame there and my college teammates are like, this is a bunch of BS. <laughs> like, it's clearly because you're coaching at Florida, which when with teammates like that, who you know, you keep you grounded. Those are real teammates, Becky. Those are That's real right. true teammates. That's right. Yeah. That's right. But I think that, um, I think for me, you know, like the big, the big defining moment for me was actually being able to go play college soccer because I knew I really wanted to do it. And like I said, I had no path laid out before me, didn't really have a whole lot of guidance in getting there. But to Paul's point, you know, I, my parents were kind of like, well, if you can figure it out, you can do it, you know? And so they didn't, they didn't, they weren't lawnmower parents or helicopter parents because they didn't have the experience to get there, which gave me like, confidence to know that I could figure that out. So, you know, I sort of was my own one woman, you know, marketing firm and sent stuff out to people. And, and finally, like the, the funny story about Methodist is that Joe came to watch our goalkeeper. This was high school soccer to watch our goalkeeper. And he then saw a forward on our team too, who happened to be like my best friend on the team. So the goalkeeper was an all American, like kind of a lot of people knew about her. And uh, the coach was the goalkeeper's mom. So after he comes and watches us play, he talks to the coach and says, yeah, I for sure want the, your daughter, the goalkeeper, and I would love to get this forward. And so the coach says, well, there's this other player. <laughs> that was me. Like, she's really, really interested. And so there was probably more to it than this, but the joke amongst our Methodist people is that Joe said to me like, Hey, if you can get those two to come, then you can come too. (laughs) And so I did, they both went and unfortunately they both transferred after the first year. (laughs) So he was stuck with me, but I think that was like such a defining moment, not so much even the opportunity, although that was huge, but it was more the process of like, I had to figure out like how to get myself recruited, how to pay for college. Once I got there, how to like, make it work even once I was there. And, you know, again, different era. So I'm not trying to like glorify the old days or anything, but, you know, I, I had to have like multiple jobs on campus to, to get paid. So I could like, I could be an RA so I could get a free room. I could work in the cafeteria so I could get free food, you know, and just finding ways to be resourceful. I think that just set the tone for me, like for the rest of my life, because, you know, getting yourself to college and paying for college, like that's a pretty big deal. And it gave me like confidence that I could solve a lot of things if I just put my mind to it, not just one event. Yeah. 
you know, it's funny because as, as an ID, you use your strengths, right? You use that ability to, to, to gather, to, you know, that, that connection to be able to say, hey, I'll, I'll do what I got to do to make it happen. I'm going to get my friends to go with me. I'm going to inspire them to play for this school that they may have never heard of. I and mean, that's okay, you know, and, and that's, that's, I love that because oftentimes the route and the path is not what you'd expect it to be. And it's not always the, the straight, obvious path, you know, uh, usually it's not probably in life, you know, usually it's the hard a hard path that's that's going to be weave. It's going to be ups and downs. It's going to be some weird thing that happens. That's why I tell people all the time. They're you know this recruiting journey. They're freaking out. They're going, oh, I got to do this. I got. I'm a freshman. What do I need to be doing tomorrow to be good? Thinking. I'm like, play and have fun and be a high school kid. That's what you need to do today. And you know because the reality is what I've seen more often than not, it's a weird story on how you get to where you are, and you end up where you're supposed to be at the end of the day. And, and we stress so much about these things. And I'm not saying don't do the work. And I'm not saying it's hard work. It, of course, all those things apply. But at the end of the day, enjoy life and enjoy the journey and focus on the process as we've heard about in the, in, in, throughout this podcast. You know, the outcome will, it will take care of itself when you do those things really, really well and you enjoy it, usually. Nine, 99 times out of 100. And so that's, that's something I think that goes to a lot of the things we've talked about. And that's not just like, oh, la, la, land, pipe dream thing. It's just, it's, it's, and use the contacts you have. And I think all those things came into that story there, really. And, 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 you know, obviously have your goals, have your things and pursue them with all you got. Now kind of go to the coaching side of it. You've been, you, you coached for a really long time and, you know, Paul isn't quite as old as, as I am. And, you know, you, you have probably a couple more years, but this idea of we, what we hear this question a lot, but what, knowing what you know now, knowing the, the just so many amazing leaders that you've been able to talk with and watch and listen to and seeing the best athletes and the clips and all these different things, what would you love to be able to go back and tell your, now I, I think in the allies of 25, but it, it, probably what, 22 or 21 year old self, whatever it was, when you started coaching, what would you, and even when you got to Florida at this bigger gig, right? Like what would you love to be able to go back and tell yourself? And, and tell young coaches in the process? Mm, that's, a, that's a great question. I, I would say this, sometimes ignorance is bliss. So like there was a lot of things that I didn't know about coaching that probably benefited me. Like for example, when I was at Barry, I would recruit kids that like North Carolina was recruiting. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know what I was thinking, <laughs> you know, like, but I just didn't know any better. Yeah. But occasionally you might get one, you know? Right. And so then that's the ignorance is bliss is beautiful. But then there's also this part of like, make sure that you're modeling your habits from healthy people, because it's not mm. easy always in our profession to find people who have a healthy relationship with their profession or their sport. And if you're always like looking at this person to model yourself after, and then in the end you find out, wow, that, that was not a, that was not a healthy ideal. Then you're, you're way down the path. So like really be intentional. I think that's part of the reason that I really enjoy what drives winning is because 
I had some great people around me. I was super lucky. My AD at Barry was amazing. The men's soccer coach was Brett Simon, who left to go to Creighton mm. and Stanford. And I mean, just like really superstar people around me that I could model myself after. But I also recognize that not everyone's that lucky. And so sometimes you don't have anyone to model yourself after. And sometimes you have people who aren't as well-grounded or healthy as the people I had. And so trying to surround yourself like intentionally with people who you feel like are pointing you in the right direction in a healthy way, because it's high performance in general, and I'm not limiting this to just sports, but high performance can be a really, really dark space because it, it becomes like, it takes what it takes to be really good at something. But at the same time, like, are you intentional about the, the, what you're setting up around that pursuit of high performance so that you are, you don't get the end to the end of your career and like, look at this wake of people behind you that you've just run over or relationships that have died because you haven't put work into those or like the things that are important to you, you need to prioritize and, and work can be one of those, but if they're important to you and you don't prioritize them without intention, it's very unlikely that you'll have a healthy situation there. Yeah, that's so good. I mean, there's so much, there's so much to that. And, and I think that there's such a push for mentorship nowadays and there's such a push for, you know, going out and getting all this content and there's content galore. And so I think that advice is more important now than ever in our, you know, just cause it's information doesn't mean it's good information and everything has its shadow. So there is great information on the internet and there's really, really bad, bad advice on the internet. And, and the same goes for different people. Don't just seek out a mentor, seek out a mentor who is wise and good and is relevant to, and understands you and going back to disc, understands who you are, understands your, your position, like understands the context that you're in. All those things are critical just because they're a great coach doesn't mean they'd be a great mentor. And, and I think that's, that's really, really important. That's some great stuff. You know, one, one thing I'd add to that, like, I personally feel like the mentor mentee relationship has some hierarchy to it. And I, I don't, I don't love that. I, I get mm-hmm. the idea of it, but I don't love it. But I think if you can find like thinking partners, that to me feels a little more level, but it also realizes that you can get information from people in both ways. And so like, for example, you know, like I, I, when I first met Brett, he was coaching an academy fifth to 12th graders. In, in basketball. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of parallels there. Like I'm at a university of Florida. He's, you know, coaching middle schoolers who are trying to make their varsity team in high school, but I learned so much from him. And then I think he learned from me because that sort of gave him his entry into the college environment. But if we were only looking at that as a one-way relationship, I'm not sure there would have been a flow back and forth. And so like, now I look at it today, like one of the people that I keep in contact with regularly as a woman named Sarah Loudon, who was on my staff in Florida. She's now working with the Houston Dash. And she takes me into the world of the pros. And we talk about things that are going on in that world. And I talk to her about things that, you know, my experience that I've had in college and continuing with what drives winning. And it's definitely a back and forth, even though she's, you know, 20 years younger than me, maybe 30 no maybe not 30 but <laughs> um and and so it it just I, I i love that arrangement that you can kind of learn from everyone and yep. i think some coaches will say like oh I don't, I don't really have that environment but like 
let's just say you're at a, a college or a high school, there are other coaches in other sports. There's teachers, you know, it doesn't have to be your sport to get information yeah. from. Absolutely. Yeah. That we talk about that cross cross sport learning all the time. And I, and I can say some of the best, most important lessons I've learned in life have come from my kids mm-hmm. and things they've said. And, and, and off, sometimes it's, it's taking what I've taught them and trained them up in and have a twist and has a thing that I never thought of. And it's like, well, dad, you said this, so isn't this right there with that, you know? And I'm like, oh my gosh, you're 100% right. And it's just total blind spot that I had. And yeah, that's so true. Yeah. I think that's an important piece that you added in there, Becky. It, it should be a relationship. You know, it should be a two-way relationship. And, and it kind of goes back to even, you know, making the call. You know, if there's somebody that you feel you could gain gain something from and, and feel like you can maybe even contribute. I think, you know, understanding you have something to contribute. I think that's why I take calls a lot is like, I, what what can I learn from this young mm-hmm. coach, this young person, this older coach, older person? I just feel like, you know, I think it was said on an earlier podcast, I think it said a hundred times, but, you know, once you feel like you've, you've, you, you know it all, you're done. You know, once you're done, you know, you're just done. So I think you've got to continuously challenge yourself and listen to new ideas. But I love that. I'm big on relationship, Becky. So, I mean, I, I learned so much from my players. You, know, you sit down on one-on-one conversation and to truly guide a program, I think the right way, you've really got to be in touch with your players. You know, you've got to, they're, they're the ones doing all the, the day-to-day work. They're the ones with the close-knit relationships that are going to affect the play on the field and on the training ground. And if you're not connected there, you're going to, you're going to lose it. So for a mentor, for, I'd have players come in and ask me stuff and I'm the one asking them questions. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> so I love that, that relationship piece big time. Well, uh, I, I love that point that you bring up about learning from your players, because I think, I think as coaches, we get so positioned as the people who have the knowledge and, and <laughs> uh, coaches, like we are like world-class tellers, but we're not necessarily really great at asking because it's just not how we've been socialized in our coaching profession but it's so it's so interesting to like maximize the capital in the room of your players like they know a lot like mm-hmm. you know what like just a simple example you could say like to a, a really good player on your team like hey what's it like to be a really important player on this team like and just let them talk, like, let them take it where it is. Maybe it's, there's more pressure. Maybe that everyone comes to them to solve their problems. Like who knows, whatever they're going to go, but you could equally do that with what's it like to be a player who really doesn't get to travel or doesn't get to have a Mm -hmm. big role on this team. What's that like? And hearing those perspectives just broadens our view as a coach. And I think makes us more thoughtful about, how we go to a line of empathy and to set of a line of judgment when someone's behaving a certain way. Yeah, no, it's really important. I hope people will go back and, and listen to that. They didn't catch all that. There's some great, great stuff in there. Becky, before we kind of move to the end of, end of this, I, I want to kind of pick your brain a little bit. I mean, you've been, you've been around the game a long time. You, you've done a great job. You're highly respected in the game. You've seen it all, all levels. I'd just love to hear kind of your input of where where you think soccer, where it's kind of gone over the last few years, the good things maybe that, that we're doing really well in, in our country, maybe some things maybe we need to do a little bit better. Yeah, you know, it was really interesting. I coached that half a season with the NWSL Orlando Pride, and it was the mm-hmm. season where there was just so much angst happening in the league with yeah. coaches and that was really a great educational experience for me. I'm so glad I did that because I think that 
the hard part about that whole scenario is that there are so many great stories in the NWSL and beyond um, Mm -hmm. that sometimes get overshadowed by some of the, the dark things that are happening in our sport. And I would love for us to be able to like, think about it. The fact that the NWSL has survived as long as it has, it's the longest league that we've had for professionals for women at this point. And, you know, we don't really talk about that that much because all we talk about is the the Yates report and the scandals and all these things. And then even college soccer as a pathway, you know, like there, there's certainly like, there's been like friction between like the men's side and the women's side in terms of like a year round season. And now I think they've decided to pursue their own avenues of that. But like, when you think about it, like why do so many international players come here? Because they don't have that opportunity to be a sportsman or woman and a student in their country. Mm. And so like, there are times we look at that as like, is this hindering the development of our sport internationally? But then we look at it also as like, wow, what an amazing opportunity for so many people to be affected in a way of, I get to be a sportsman or woman in my sport, get a really high level education in the same time. and you know, yes, are there some perils to that for the 1% of the 1%? Maybe. But are there some gains for that for the 99%? Totally. Mm. Um, So I don't know. I mean, you know, you look at like, I went to the Euros last year. And man, like those teams, there's some teams that are just really stepping up their investment in the game and the development of players. And we talk about all the time is the US falling behind. And again, I think Sometimes we are always looking at what we don't have as opposed to what we do have. And so my, my thing is, can we leverage and really pay attention to the things that we're doing well, not to ignore where we need to get better, but to like, not just discount what we're doing well. And I feel like, I mean, in all sports, not just soccer, but we have such a high level of criticism sometimes and I think if we spent as much time so getting solutions as we do criticizing, we could probably come up with some pretty good ideas. <laughs> That's good. That's good advice. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because I've had a lot of conversations with people about that idea of the, should we just, you know, college soccer is a hindrance to pros and and we it, we're, we're ruining the development of the player and it's not good enough soccer if they're going to play after college and and yet every well I'm not going to say every because I have I've talked to some that didn't necessarily say this but I didn't ask them but the coach or the players who played at the highest level we had Clyde Best on on you know earlier in the podcast he played many years in the pros he played in for Westham played for the NASL and every time I talked to him about you know my kids and if they had if they wanted to play pro and this he goes go to college get your education and you see these guys from Europe coming here like you said that they want to come here and they'll play for anybody here to get their education my son plays a biola and five or six of their players are internationally more than that are internationals because they want to come and they want to get the education and it's something that is is so as you said that one percent and it's probably one percent one percent maybe they skip but too many people are seeing that as, oh, that's the route. That's the way, that's what I got to do. And I think it's such a, it's such a problem that we need, it's just an education issue, right? It's, man, this is something that we need to educate them on to be able to understand that. I think it goes to our youth ranks too. I mean, just the youth system. So many people are saying, well, what will get us to be a pro? I think that's the wrong question. I mean, what will develop them as humans? And if they make pro, great. And I don't know, what are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the the hard part is is like the pay for play model that U Sports is is definitely one of the differences that from when we grew up, even, you know, mm-hmm. like I, I played club soccer, but I, I know we didn't pay any exorbitant fees because we, I wouldn't have been playing if we right. did. Yep. And then high school sports, you know, like it, people will argue the relevance of high school soccer or any high school sport, maybe besides football. And I, I just think that we have to evolve as the situations evolve. And I think the challenge is that, you know, we talk about like, if you ask somebody either of your ages or my age and say, what are the differences between when you were coming up? Like, what is the modern athlete face that you did not? That's a really interesting place to start a conversation because it's so different, Mm -hmm. you know, like even like the example of social media, like if I played a game, the only people who saw it were like my parents and like maybe a hundred people, if it was a well-attended game, you know, now like, I mean, there's like third grade highlights that are cut up by a production company and posted on the internet, you know? And so if I had a great game, maybe I'm getting a lot of validation from more people, but if I had a bad game or make a mistake, I'm also getting that criticism. And that's a lot to take for a young person's mind, you know? And I think that's, that's more the, the fear for me is how do we keep the joy of the game? How do we keep the the reason kids are playing relevant and how do we keep it accessible to everyone because you know pay for play is not an option for a lot of people yeah and if anyone has the answers to those questions uh we would love to hear them and you could (laughs) get them on the podcast yeah exactly (laughs) yeah definitely reach out to me and we'll talk about that all right so you know as we as we say i say this almost every episode all good things must come to an end at some point and we are nearing that we are very close to that, but we have a couple questions we ask all of our guests, and the, and the and the first is, you know, how do you use the lessons you've learned directly from the game of soccer in your personal relationships outside the game? Like the one that I use is the retaliator gets the red with my kids, right? So you know that that's the reality. They say, well, they did it first. Well, so I didn't see them do it, and I saw you do it. So that's what a referee would do. So what uh, what would be something like that, or you know, anything else that you, that comes to your mind when you think about that? Things that you're using that you learned from the game. Oh my gosh. Like, I feel like, I feel like every single day I'm using lessons from the game all the time, but you know, since I just listened to that podcast last night with Abby, one of the things that really stuck out to me was if you've read Wolfpack, which is her book, she talks about leading from the bench. And I think that's a really, really hard thing for a lot of people to do. I mean, I know as a player myself, there were times where I probably wasn't great at that. And I I feel like one of the things that I really learned through coaching and playing, playing as a bad example, coaching as a better example of like, I was very committed to my sport. You know, I was really dedicated. I was putting everything into it. And I felt like some of my teammates weren't on my level with that, but I was so interested in pointing out to them that they weren't on my level, that I was less interested in actually trying to bring them up to my level. And Mm. I I just felt like, honestly, like, I think my freshman year, I walked around campus going like, who raised these people? And like, what were they thinking? You know, like I was so (laughs) judgmental. And then when I got into coaching and I started to expand my bandwidth of like the differences of people, I just realized like, I I don't know why I didn't understand this in college, but like not everybody was raised like me. Surprise, Mm. surprise. (laughs) And so like 
trying to, I think my biggest lesson in playing and coaching has been around empathy. And I would, if you had asked me when I was a younger coach, like what skills are you looking for the most in your players? I would have said stuff like competitive, hardworking, you know, like all these like hard skills. And if you said to me now, like curious would be one, because if you're curious, like you're always wanting to grow and empathy would be the other, because if you're empathetic, then you're probably going to be a pretty good teammate. And those two would not have entered my vocabulary as a player or as a younger coach. Mm -hmm. That's good. That's good. Good. Last, uh, last question here for you. What have you watched, read, or listened to that has most impacted your thinking on how soccer explains life and leadership? Mm. Wow. That's a tough one. You've given us some good books throughout the, throughout (laughs) this podcast that Phil's going to have to knock out into the show notes, but is there anything, anything um, that were really impactful for you? Well, you know, what's funny is because I'm not traveling as much, I'm reading less, which I need to fix that because I, that was always my reading time was, you know, the plane yeah. or bus rides and stuff like that. But, you know, I just watched Welcome to Wrexham, which I'm sure a lot of people have. And of course, I was an early adopter of Ted Lasso. Loved, I can't yeah. wait. I think it's February 29th. It's coming back. But Ted Lasso, for me, the thing I loved about Ted Lasso was that, and this is, I think this is a great point for coaches of any sport. Because Ted couldn't coach the sport because he knew nothing about soccer, he could only coach the humans, right? The people who were playing the sport. Mm-hmm. And so I tried to do that. My, my last couple of years at Florida, I tried to, it, I, to be honest, I tried it in the spring because I felt like it was a little lower stake. So it wasn't real games. <laughs> the testing <laughs> ground like, is always the spring. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I tried to watch games without focusing on the sport and instead focusing on everything that happened, like in between, like the action between the action. Mm. And first of all, it was really hard because I kept getting drawn to the sport. I'm like, Mm. first touch. And then I'm like, oh wait, stop. But I think that when I could, in those moments where I could focus on just the action between the action, I learned so much. So now that I'm not coaching and I don't have to be drawn to the execution, like when I watch games, whether it's live or on TV of any sport, Like I really try to watch the action between the action, like people's body language, how they interact Mm -hmm. with each other, all these different things. And it is a fascinating way to watch sport, but more importantly, watch sport and apply lessons. Yeah, that's really good. It's actually been a while since someone's recommended Ted Lasso. Probably has to do with the fact that it hasn't been a new season for a while. So I too, I actually just got Apple TV again for that very reason. So we had we had we had quite a we had like a series on what how Ted Lasso explains leadership. So that's that's very much a good thing. The other thing that's interesting on that note is watching players and how they perform under different managers. And I always use the example of Luke Shaw because he was a, he's a kid who is, I just, I love watching him play, but watching him play under Mourinho was very different from watching him play under Solskjaer and Mourinho is very task focused and Solskjaer is very people focused and Shaw, the little, I, you know, I was able to have a couple conversations with him. He seems to be a kid who is more of an S type personality. And so to watch these different players and to the extent you can kind of guess what they are to see how they respond. It's fascinating. And as coaches, I think that's really important to watch those all or nothing specials, watch those things for what you're talking about, that 
How do they respond when the manager's railing into them? And then what does that look like if they do any figuring out what kind of personality style they are? It it's super super important. And I you know like you said, Ted Lasso obviously it's fictional, but the principles are so true to life. And you know, so I Oh, wait, I just thought of appreciate. another really good one. I just watched this last weekend. It's called 38 in the Garden. So it's, it's only 38 minutes long, 38 in the garden. It's about Jeremy Lin, remember Lin Sanity? Oh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So good because I think it speaks to what you were just saying, Phil, about the, sometimes it's the environment, getting your opportunity in the right environment takes people in a different place, you know? So like the story about Jeremy Lin is fascinating because he was the California high school player of the year, won a state championship and had zero offers to go anywhere to play in college ends up at Harvard because he had two, he ended up getting Harvard and MIT were his only offers. And then, you know, gets taken by golden state warriors, no go, like doesn't get a minute. And it just sort of follows his progression till he gets to the Knicks. And it is such a fascinating short documentary about how environment and the, the talent fits in certain places. So I would highly recommend that. That's, That's so good, good folks. That's a first. Yeah, that is. A, I can't wait to watch that. And I love that story. I've watched a couple of things on Jeremy Lin, and he's it's, it's a great, great story. And it's also a little podcasting lesson, folks. If you talk long enough, they'll think of more stuff. So it's good. <laughs> but I, I'm not going to keep going because I'm sure there's a lot more that would come if we did. But thank you so much, Becky, for for being a part of the conversation. Thank you for all you're doing. And keep keep putting out the What Drives Winning. It's so good. And if you're not familiar with What Drives Winning, folks, we'll have the link in the show notes. But it's just whatdriveswinning.com. And trust me, you're going to, you know, allow some time when you do that because there's so much good stuff there. So thank you, Becky. Thank you. It was great talking to you guys. It's great questions. Yeah, well, yeah, we th- appreciate thanks, you. Becky, for being for being with us. I've always appreciated what you what you do have done for the game and continue to do for the game. And just uh, very much appreciate you coming on with us today. Enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, me too. I loved it. So, folks, thank you for being a part of this. Thank you for listening. And, you know, as you know, you can always go to the show notes, find all those books, all the different things we talked about. We'll have the links to those, the documentaries, whatever it is, those links will be there in the show notes. Also in the show notes, you'll find the link to Warrior Way Soccer to find out what Paul and Marcy are doing there down in Waco and other parts of the country and other parts of the world. And also coaching the bigger game. You can you can get the link to that to see what Christian DeVries and I are doing there. We're actually launching our first cohort for that in a little bit. So thank you everyone for all you're doing. Keep it up. And I, you know, as always, we hope that you're using what you're learning here and you're using it to be a better spouse, a better parent, a better coach, better leader in all that you do. And continually remind yourself that soccer does explain life and leadership. Thanks a lot. Have a great couple weeks.